Thank you, Justin and Ben, and thank you, Calvary Church. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, it's going to be worshiping with you this morning. We have a lot to cover this morning. I have a 12-part series I'm going to give to you in the next 39 minutes. And so I encourage you to be alert, set your alarm clock halfway through so it wakes you back up, and we want to continue to journey and study together as well. You have an outline that's available for you in this uh, particular text. We're in the series called The Chronicles of the Kings, and it's really a storyline of three kings. That's why it's so challenging. We want to look at the King Saul, King Solomon, and King David in that order, even though they're chronologically different than that. In this series, we're going to learn from the kings of the Old Testament. Now, we know about Saul and David and Solomon. Many times we have background information on that, David and Goliath and things like that. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on those three kings. We'll get into the other kings uh, that uh, probably a lot of us have not been that much aware of and yet learned from them. And this morning it's all about heart. In the case of King Saul, he had no heart. In the case of King Solomon, he had a half a heart. And the case of David, he had a whole heart. That's why in 1 Samuel, when the people were looking for a new king, God said to Samuel, Do not look at it the appearance of the height of a stature because I have rejected him. But God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So we're going to be talking about the heart here this morning. Now the three kings that we want to be looking at they are all very successful kings. They have territory that they were able to expand. It's an interesting little map here to show you a, a sense. In the brown area, you see the Saul's kingdom that was uh, relatively small compared to in the green, David's kingdom. And then Solomon became king after him, and you see he expanded even further up. In today's world, that, of course, and uh, above there you see Syria, and Syria goes all the way up there, and just above Sort of that blue-green color is the city of Aleppo. We've heard about that during the presidential election. One of the president's uh, election uh, candidates didn't know where Aleppo was, never heard of it. And so that's the area of Aleppo just above that green area. The thing I wanted to draw your attention to is you notice on the left-hand side there above the Sea of Galilee, that's, of course, Lebanon. That was not their territory then. It's not their territory today. And then also on the left-hand side down by the Dead Sea at the bottom portion of it, you see Amalek, you see Edom, you see Moab, you see Ammon. Uh, these are all territorial people that came out of uh, sin in the past. Ammon and Moab, those people, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they came out of this uh, illicit relationship between Lot and his daughters. And then Edom came out of uh, a man by the name of Esau and didn't have a good relationship with his brother Jacob. And so these Edomites would be sort of a thorn in the flesh to the nation of Israel as well. And then over on the left-hand side, you see this area called Philistia. These are the Philistines. That's where Goliath came from and came over to attack them. The Philistines were a constant thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. And it's interesting where Philistia is, that is today where the Palestinians are. This is the Gaza, and this is sort of the strip of land that is still under question and still is a source of a thorn in the flesh. So it's fascinating how even way back then, 3,000 years ago, we're talking about 3,000 years ago, uh, they had these nations that are around that were constantly trying to take out the nation of Israel. Today, fast forward 3,000 years, you still find that there are nations around that are trying to take out the nation of Israel. And in point of fact, you'll notice that the nation of Israel on the map is actually going way up into Syria. So if you want to go back to historical, 
historical roots as to whose land is whose land, it's fascinating to me to realize that God had actually given to them a great territory, and much of that territory that was conquered is no longer under Israeli control. So that's a little bit of a map that you can see that uh, helps to understand them. But the important thing about the heart, no heart, half heart, and a whole heart, is that these three kings all were successful. People would look at them and said they did a great job from a human perspective. But also, all three of these kings had terrible sin problems, where they had terrible failures, and God still wanted to work through their lives. So whether you're highly successful or highly sinful, it doesn't matter to God what matters. But when it comes right down to it, what really matters to God is not how bad was our sin, how successful was our uh, achievements in life, but where was our heart in the midst of it, and how did our heart get through those things to maintain a relationship with God? That's what we want to be talking about this morning. So I'm going to go very quickly through Saul and through Solomon. But in the outline that you have, there's lots of territory there you can look at on your own. But I want to show you three character traits of a person who has no heart. No heart before God. No relationship that is vital, growing, and healthy. Saul, for example, one of the things, and what I did is I just read through the text. I read through First and Second Samuel. And I just began to make observations about why did Saul so terribly fail? Why, when Solomon had so much going for him, did things not turn out well towards the end? And in the case of King David, why did God say he is a man after my own heart? Why did God give to David the kingdom forever? Why did he have a covenant with him, the, what we call the Davidic covenant, that still establishes Israel as God's people? And so why? These are some observations that I made, and you can make your own. There's other things we could say, so I just want to give that little disclaimer. But here are some observations about Saul. Why did his heart not turn out well? Why did his life end so miserably? Well, number one, he lived by his own standards. He created his own standards for what God is trying to do in his life. He created his own basis of truth, and so he operated out of his own subjective desire to do what he wanted to do. For example, here's an example. In 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, and here's a little background. A lot more could be said all these passages. God said through Samuel, who was the judge, that Samuel would come in seven days so that they could have a sacrifice because the Philistines are going to attack. Well, seven days are almost up, and Saul says to himself, Samuel's supposed to come and do a sacrifice, but he's not here. And because he's not here, I therefore think I should do that sacrifice. In point of art, that was an illegal or unlawful act according to the code of the laws of the land of Israel. The priest alone would do the sacrifice. So Saul takes it upon himself, and Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And that's God saying, you know, I've chosen someone else. You're fired. Well, for 15 years, he continues to serve. But here's the point. The reason Saul began to fail is because his heart was not under the commands of God, even when it seemed convenient to be there. Who's going to offer the sacrifice? Saul says, well, I'll just take care of it. And he skirted the truth of God's word. 
when you skirt the truth of God's Word, when you mend it, when you bend it, when you monopolize it in ways to manipulate so that your own end is accomplished, you have no heart before God. Secondly, there was no heart because he loved to rationalize sin, much like what we just said, and he loved to blame other people for his problems. You have no heart before God if you're always blaming someone else, rationalizing the sinful, evil behavior. For example, God had said through Samuel the judge, the priest, kill Amalek, wipe them all out, take the king, kill him, kill all of his followers, completely root them out of the society because Amalek is a spiritual analogy to sin. We need to rid all the sin that could corrupt us. Well, King Saul did not kill all of them. He kept the king alive, and he kept all the goods that he got out of it. Samuel approaches him, and he says to him this, Why then did you uh, not obey the, the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the soil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. No, he didn't. He didn't kill the king, and he kept all this livestock that came from them. And he went on a mission on which the Lord had sent me. See, he rationalized it as mine. I, I did do that. No, you didn't do that. Don't say you did something when you didn't do it. And I brought back King Agag, the king of Amalek, and utterly destroyed the Amalekites. No, he did not utterly destroy the Amalekites. And then I put this little thing in yellow. It's not in yellow in your Bible, but it's just on the screen. But the people. It's the people. I didn't do that. It's the people you gave me, God. It's sort of your fault and sort of their fault, but it's not my fault. But the people, they took some of the sheep, the spoil, the sheep, the ox, and the choice of the things devoted to the destruction, to the sacrifice of the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's the people. He rationalizes sin. I did do it. No, you didn't do it. It's amazing how we will lie before God about the wrong that we've done and not fully admit it and let God forgive it. He didn't do that. And then secondly, he says, oh, you hear the sheep? You hear the sheep in the background? Oh, it's the people that did that. I can't help myself if the people are going to do that. It's rationalizing and blaming others. You have no heart for God. And then finally, no heart. As Saul ends up his life in this way, it's one that sorrows over the consequences of sin, but not the sin itself. And here are three character traits of all three of them. Their hearts reveal the character of their, of their lives. In his heart, he cares what people think about him when he sinned. Because Samuel came to him and saw, you're going to be removed as king because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And then you lied about it and you blamed the people about it. And so God says through Samuel that he said, I have sinned. Saul says, I have sinned. But please honor me. Please honor me. And now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. You notice what he's doing there? so irritating to our Lord that he just doesn't admit it. Yeah, I blew it. I humble myself before you. He doesn't do that. He says, okay, I've sinned, but Samuel, I, I need a little help here because I've got a PR problem. I'm concerned what people are going to say about me. I'm concerned what people are going to think about me. And when we sin, yeah, we should be concerned about that, but that's not the priority. That was the priority for Saul. When he sinned, all he cared was what people would think about him, his reputation. What we should care about is what God thinks about us. Then humbly throw ourselves on his grace. So a man with no heart, a man with no heart, he 
twists the truth of God's Word to fit his own desires. He rationalizes sin and blames others. And then finally, when confronted, he says, okay, I have sinned, but would you help me? Because I don't want people to think ill will of me. Instead of saying, God, I've broken your heart, and I humbly come before you. We need to help Saul's find a whole heart. Secondly, then there's Solomon going after King. Of course, Solomon was one of the sons of King David. But I want to go to King David last and just drill down on that. But half heart. Sometimes we have people that start out really strong. Here's Solomon. Here's a half a heart guy. I love this guy at the beginning of his life. One that is grounded in God's truth by his father and richly blessed by God. On David's deathbed, David is still passing on his faith to his son Solomon. I love these words. As David's time to draw, die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in all of his ways. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breath of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly devoted to the Lord our God and to walk in his statutes. So that's a dad passing on his faith. That's where his heart Solomon's heart was so good then. It was so good. But then you pass time. David dies. Daddy's dead. Solomon then. We fast fast forward to the next chapter. He's one that begins to reflect the weakness of that half heart for God. In what way is it weak? Because in this faithfulness to God as a worshiping man, this is what the text says. Now Solomon loved the Lord. So he loved the Lord. We're not discounting his love. Half-hearted Christians, we don't discount that they love the Lord. The problem is the latter part of it, walking in the statutes of his father, David, and then the, the author of the text says, except, except. He sacrificed and burned incenses on the high places. The Canaanites would establish these high places that were places of idolatry. Now, some people believe that Solomon went up there and worshipped God on the high places that were part of the Canaanite worship experience. I don't know what he did up there. All I know is that when the author says, accept, the author is telling us, you know, there's something that wasn't quite right. Solomon is a lot like those of us who grew up in a Christian home as I did. And then as soon as we move out of the home, We move on with our lives. Mom and dad are not a daily presence anymore. We begin to create kind of our own experience with God. And it becomes somewhat diluted over time. And we love the Lord because we grew up with that in a home like Solomon did with David. Except I begin to find my own way that's not quite as faithful as what I grew up with. That's what happens so much, like for me in my college years and so many college students or post-college. We begin to drift away as we realize patterns and habits of worship before the Lord are not as important to me anymore. And we begin to have not a whole heart, but a heart that loves the Lord, but it's half-heartedly by my own practices that fail to fully engage and indulge with an almighty God. 
That's Solomon's weak point. That weakness begins to be exploited. Because as Solomon continues to live his life, notice his last point. It's one that does not finish well in life. And this is what's so sad. Because he compromised his faith with the values of the world. And compared to Saul, in Saul, in his heart, he cared what other people said about his sin. Solomon, Solomon did not care what the people thought. He didn't care what God thought. And that's what's so tragic. And here is the breakdown. Fast forward in his life, towards the latter part of his life, in 1 Kings 11. He's built the temple. Queen of Sheba has come and oohed and awed over the temple. And then the author of Kings says this in a summary fashion. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall you associate with them, you, for they will surely turn your heart away after gods. And Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives. 700 wives. Does that just blow you away? When somebody has 700 wives, you should instantly say, you've got a problem. (laughs) He had 700 wives. And what I didn't put on there was he had 300 concubines. If you've got one concubine, you've got a problem, let alone 300. Are you with me on this thing? It's just astounding. How many anniversaries did he have to remember? (laughs) Man. Honey, Solomon, you forgot our anniversary. Oh, yeah, your you're wife number 549. That's right. Let me, here, let me etch it into a stone. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart, here we go, was not wholly devoted to the Lord God as the heart of David his father had been half-hearted. Why was it half-hearted? It's not that he had 700 wives. What are 700 wives? But what did he do? He surrendered to the values of the world around him. Other kings and other kingdoms, you, when you and I have a healthy relationship with other kingdoms, you take their daughter into marriage. And that's just how it worked. That was the system. Way back in Deuteronomy 17 that you can read on your own, but Deuteronomy 17, God says when you have a king, make sure that king doesn't have more than one wife. And make sure he doesn't acquire all this power and horses because I don't want him to turn his heart away from me. This is the danger. Now, I'm not worried about some of us going to have 700 wives. The application is, okay, I'll, I'll stick with the one that I have and, and okay, then I'm okay. no. The application is not avoid 700 wives. The application is avoid the compromise of a conviction, compromised by the values of a world where I just want to get along, go along, and I won't hold to the purity and the holiness of who my God is because I don't want people to think ill of me because I'm some sort of a nutcase. Now, we need to do it in love and grace, but we need to walk in holiness and in righteousness and not surrender to the values of a world that thinks and operates so differently. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And there's nothing the evil one wants more than to take a church like Calvary Church and take what we believe and bend it, compromise it, dilute it with the way the world thinks that we just can get along. And we don't want you to do that individually. I don't want you to think that some of the normalization of certain sins that you might see on TV and the movies and the culture and society, that somehow that is now acceptable to God. It's not. But when that happens, like Solomon, when he surrendered to the values of the world, it turned his heart from God, and he was not wholly devoted to the Lord. That's what we want to avoid. Sort of on Sunday we worship and we say we love the Lord, but on Monday, man, you can't tell the difference between a person who is walking with Jesus and one who isn't. We want it to be a seven-day, 24-hour experience of holy walking before the Lord. We don't want compromise. We don't want to fudge the corners. We don't want to lack integrity and honesty and faithfulness. And what we believe and how we love people there are some people that are highly judgmental, very condemning. And I say to people who do those things, you're not wholly devoted to the Lord. I remember I got a, uh, I don't know whether to say this or not. Blame Ken. I got a letter, you know, I did that news article a few weeks ago. It was a picture of me on my motorcycle in the chapel over there. Okay, thanks. Um, but then that next week, I got one of the harshest, most judgmental, most condemning letters of someone who was so proud to study the Bible. And this person wrote, instead of writing your Harley, you should be studying the Bible. <laughs> well, okay, you got me there, you know, well, what am I going to say, you know? Actually, I haven't written it. I wrote it yesterday. I hadn't written it before that for three weeks. So. But the thing is, like, it's so easy to take cheap shots and be judgmental and yet be so biblically knowledgeable. That's, that's a half a heart. It's a heart that loves the Lord and loves the Word, but a heart that doesn't love people and express it in grace. See, we don't, we don't want that either. It's not just what we believe, but it's how we express our faith. A half a heart can be loving and kind, but not have fidelity in terms of what we believe. A half a heart can have 100% doctrinal purity, but then have a half a heart with love and grace to people. We need a whole heart that not only has fidelity of belief, biblical truth, but that also has this magnanimous love that just extends to everyone regardless of who they are and how they live. That's what we want. That's a whole heart. And you see that in King David. Let's go to David. Here's the guy with a whole heart, and we're going to run through these things. I'll keep my eye on the clock, but there's so many good things here about David's heart. And here is the application. As we go through each of these, we, we should discern. I've done this already. I had to study this thing last couple of weeks reading over these texts and say, Lord, are these qualities you see in my heart 
That should be your question because that's been my question. Lord, do you see these qualities in my heart? Do I have a whole heart or am I like Solomon? I've got a half a heart good over here, but the other half pretty, pretty stinks up the room because of how I treat people or how I compromise what I believe. Here's a whole heart. King David, it's one of the faithful heart to serve in small ways which leads to a faithful response in the big challenges of life. And I can't go into the text. It's a great story. I mean, it's first Samuel 16. God says, I want to, I'm looking for a man of a heart, not on the external stature. And then in first Samuel 17, uh, the Philistines that you saw, Philistia, the Philistines were coming across. Goliath is there. Goliath says, I'll fight one of you, and whoever wins will be the conqueror of this community. Well, David is a little shepherd boy taking care of sheep at that point. And his father says, David, would you bring food to your brothers who are the warriors? And David, you're just a little shepherd. So David's job, while Goliath is challenging the Israelites, was like a Domino's pizza guy. That's what he did. He brought food and, and fruit and whatever, drink. He was a delivery service. That's all he did. But what he did in this delivery service, he did it with all of his heart. So that just days later, he says, what's going on here? And everybody, oh, he's Goliath. He's a big, strong guy. Nobody can take him on. And David says, how dare him defy the armies of God? I'll take him out. And everybody, oh, you've got to be kidding me. There's no way. You're a little kid. All you got is a slingshot here. He puts all the armor of Saul on. Can't hardly carry it around. It's too big and heavy. Gets rid of all that and just picks up some stones and nails the guy in the forehead. And all the armies of Israel were saying, he's so big, we can never take him out. Well, in David's heart, he's so big, there's no way I'll miss. It's all a matter of perspective. And so he wipes out Goliath. That's all within the same chapter. A delivery boy of food, small things, taking out Goliath to big things. You know what God wants with your heart and my heart? A willingness to do the small things as faithfully as the big challenges of the Goliaths of our lives. That's what God looked for with a whole heart. Secondly, a whole heart is one that maintains this humility when experiencing prosperity. Some of the hardest times to be humble, trusting, dependent is when we're prospering. I, I read through the text and I came across this in 1 Samuel 18. Now David was prospering in all of his ways for the Lord was with him. God loves to bless us. He's prospering, notice, in all his ways. So when God prospers us, whether it's financially, physically with health, spiritually in our closeness with the Lord, emotionally where there's stability and, and encouragement in all of his ways. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life and my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? See, Saul wanted to give to King David a, uh, one of his daughters. Here, take my daughter. You can become my son-in-law. And David says, No, I am unworthy. So he gave her to somebody else. Would you love to be a woman back then? He said, like... <laughs> Oh, you don't want him? Okay, I'll give you someone else here. Second best. It's crazy. But that's what was going on. There was this sense in David's heart that as he was prospering, 
it didn't gain him any special rights before God. And if you're prospering before the Lord spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, please watch your heart because it can become independent of God. And it becomes corrosive. And there becomes this sort of self-sufficiency and not this unworthiness before an almighty God. Thirdly, he had a whole heart, but it was one that was dependent, consistently seeking God's guidance in his life. As I read through the first Samuel, second Samuel, one of the things that caught my eye at, uh, so many times as David was leading up to his rule as king, he's in his early days of being the king. He's already been anointed, but he's not really been installed. But it's interesting as David and his band of warriors 600-plus men would go around doing battle, destroying the enemies that were surrounding them, the Philistines and like. And I noticed how many times David would constantly seek the Lord's direction. I, I throw on the screen these wonderful words. In 1 Samuel 23, so David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack the Philistines? In 1 Samuel 23, he again says, then he said, O Lord God of Israel, should I go? In 1 Samuel 30, he again says, David inquired of the Lord, should I go and battle them? Another battle. In 2 Samuel 2, David inquired of the Lord, should I go and battle them again? In 2 Samuel 5, then David inquired of the Lord, should I go again? I love that heart. It's a heart that on a daily basis, on a daily basis is seeking God, what would you have me to do? It's walking every step of every day, Lord, in this situation, in this person's life, in this decision that I need to make, in this context of people that I'm going to be with. God, I am calling upon you, asking for your guidance, your truth, your inspiration, your encouragement, your presence with me. It's a heart that is constantly, constantly calling upon the Lord. So I was intrigued and increased, blessed by this. I was given this, and I have permission to share this with you. This is Blaine Molesbury. Blaine Molesbury has been a dear saint here in Silas, uh, here at Calvary Church. You often would have seen him greet you, working with marriages and doing great ministry to people's lives. Well, they dropped this off at my house when I wasn't there a couple of weeks ago. And what this is is a series of letters and what Blaine calls legacy letters, legacy letters. And it tells the story of his life, and the letters go all the way back to, I think, the year 2000 or so. And he's written them to his children. I thought, man, I never thought about doing that. And he thought about this, like, what, 16 years ago. And I was blessed as you read through them, and one of the letters that caught my attention goes to this point about King David. And he writes to his children, dear children, each day it's, it's dear children. And I didn't start out that way. Reading the Bible as a kid, as a young man, never happened. When I graduated from Montrose High, the ladies of the church or family attended gave me a little Bible in a box. When I opened the box, I thought, well, how cute. I put it in my socks drawer and never opened it again. As I moved to California and around Southern California, for some reason it just went from one socks drawer to another sock drawer. Is your Bible in your sock drawer? You may have heard of my drive to get wealthy, 
starting with a furniture manufacturing business and losing everything we had and more before I was 30. That's the highs and lows. That wake-up call helped me to start our search for success by finding truth, whatever that was. I questioned why I existed and doubted there was a God. Life had little meaning at that time. There was an old Bible in the house and I tried to read it. It made no sense. Doris bought me a modern version thinking it would help. And the same thing written thousands of years ago, I couldn't understand it. I was sure I would not find truth there in the Bible. Through a unique and wonderful set of circumstances too long for this letter, I was challenged to surrender my whole life to God by accepting Jesus as my personal Savior. I did it and really meant it. I knew something like life-changing had happened when I read the same Bible that afternoon and I understood every word and I knew it was a love letter as if written yesterday from God to me. Well, I got that little Bible out of the sock, sock box and in the process of soaking all of it, I could, all I could of what God had had for me, I wore it out along with others since then. Mark has asked me to pass it on to him, which... When I, when I pass on. I know the Bible is God's complete word to us, and here's what the Apostle Paul said. The Bible is inspired by God. It's useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, giving instructions for the right living. And that's where I have found the truth that I was seeking, and as a result, real joy as well. Now, that's what you call passing on your legacy. Not just what you write in a letter, but living it. Being a living letter. Passing on. Blaine, God bless his heart. He's been a faithful servant here, and Parkinson's is slowly stealing away the physical part of his life, but his heart is whole and full for the Lord. And that's what counts. Finishing well. I'm blessed by that because it reminded of King David when King David constantly inquired of the Lord, inquired of the Lord. A whole heart is also reflected in this way. It's one of the tender hearts sensitive to even the slightest wrong against another or God. David is being chased by King Saul. King Saul is a jealous, angry man. And he wants to destroy David because he sees David as taking over his kingdom and all the people love David better than Saul. So he constantly was chasing him down and David was constantly hiding in caves and Getty and places like that. Well, one day when King David was in En Gedi, this is a little rich little area. When you go on a tour of Israel, you go to En Gedi. You walk all the way back in there, and it's a beautiful lush area where there's, there's uh, in the middle of the desert where there's greenery and there's water. There's water that's coming all the way from the other side of the nation of Israel through the mountains and coming out that side. Well, there's caverns. There's caves that are there. In one of those caves, David and his men were hiding. Saul goes into that cave to relieve himself. And while he is there, the men said to David, This is your chance. Kill the king. God gave you to him. This is your chance. Seek revenge. So David sneaks up, and here's what the text says at that point. So David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this Thank to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. David's heart was so tender to the Lord that not only would he not kill him, but he felt guilty by taking a portion of his robe. He says, who am I to do that? Now you can have a hypersensitive conscience that is always out of control. 
You can have a very callous conscience that never feels any sin. You can have either side of an extreme. But when you get it to that sweet spot where David is, there's this tender heart that says, Who am I to seek revenge and wound another brother? The king that is still king. I have no right to do that to him. But that tender heart that his conscience bothered him. My conscience should bother me when I do wrong. But it should be healed when I go to God. But I love that quality of a whole heart. It is so aware. Oh, I offended someone always. Because I do. You know, when you speak live like I do on Sundays like this, I have 35 to 40 minutes to wound and unnecessarily offend three or four of you. Because, <laughs> you, you know, like random thoughts that come to your mind, you sort of throw it out. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I've done that. Yeah, what? Excuse me? <laughs> All right, thank you very much. We need to be very careful, and our conscience needs to be very tender to the awareness of how God works through us. One with a teachable heart. He had this beautiful teachable heart that was willing to learn from the counsel of others. And David said to Abigail, here's the big story, Nabal is a foolish man that wanted to resent David and didn't re- and repay him for the, what his men had done. So Abigail, the wife of Nabal, comes to David and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has sent you this day to me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me from this day from bloodshed. I have listened to you. Abigail says, Don't kill my husband for what he did. He's a terrible, foolish terrible man. But Abigail says, I come and I bow before you and I ask you to stop because think of what it will happen if you do that. David had a teachable heart from a woman, no less, in that culture who came and says, no, don't. And David says, oh my goodness, thank you. If you had not come and give me your advice, your counsel, a tender heart A whole heart says, I will receive the counsel of other people and I will process that in a way that lets me do the right thing. An unteachable heart is a half-hearted Solomon. A whole heart is a teachable heart that says, no matter who says it, I'm going to learn from that. There's something there for me and I want to observe what that is. It is one with an uninhibited, joyful heart of worship before the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant is being brought into the city of Jerusalem. And here is what happens. And David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. And he's dancing. He's dancing like a fool for God. And his wife saw him dancing. She got all over him. Wrote him a nasty anonymous letter and told him he shouldn't be doing that. And so there are those times when you try to do the right thing, you don't have, have the help. Oops, that's just me. But what I love about his heart is he does what I don't always feel comfortable doing. You know, I grew up, when I grew up in the church, if I went like this in worship, I love to see the choir doing it. I love the choir raising their hands in worship. See, I have to overcome my, my history. I grew up in a church where you're doing that a lot. You're a crazy charismatic and you don't belong here. And that's kind of how I always felt growing up. So I have this inhibition that is not healthy. This is like group therapy right now. Okay? So I, we have these things that, that I want to be uninhibited. In fact, maybe when Justin comes to sing the next song, we should all get in the aisle and just dance like crazy. Dance to the music. I'm just being kid. I'm just kidding, sort of. But this uninhibited, joyful worship of God 
that we come. That's a whole heart. And then finally, it's a whole heart. I'm going to go on to the last one. It's a whole heart that is truly repentant before the Lord God. Now, David did a terrible thing. Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, and oh, it's just, just agonizing. But he confesses his sin before the Lord. And, you know, when Saul sinned in his heart, he cared what people thought. When Solomon sinned in his heart, he didn't care what anyone thought. But when David sinned in his heart, that's why I put this on the screen, he cares what God thinks about his sin. In Psalm 51, David wrote this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Create in me a new heart, clean heart, a whole heart. That's what I want for us, that we would be people of a whole heart. And I encourage you, go through those qualities. Lord, which of these do you want me to work on next? Which of these do I want to say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've done in this area already. Let's be people of a whole heart. Now, to help us, I'm going to invite Kristen Gacko to come on up here. Kristen's part of our staff here at Calvary. And, yeah, let's give her a little... uh, appreciation. Kristen, thanks for coming here. And, and I love Kristen is just so much into what we call spiritual direction and ministering to people and things of prayer and just this intimacy with the Lord. And we've done some of that in some of our staff retreats where we try to build that into our qualities in our lives. It's not just having biblical truth, but it's having a heart that's right with God. Can you just tell us very quickly, what is spiritual direction and kind of how do you see that in respect to what we're saying here today? Yeah, absolutely. It's just an opportunity for you guys to have someone come alongside you. So exactly what Pastor Dave is preaching as far as looking at our hearts, as far as having a truly repentant heart, as far as asking God questions and constantly being directed by our Heavenly Father. If you sometimes feel a little bit lost in that process or you feel a little stuck, um, it's just an opportunity to have someone come alongside you and listen to God with you and to kind of help you um, graciously and lovingly look at your heart, not condemning, not shaming, not full of guilt, but just graciously kind of opening our hearts to the Lord and having someone kind of ask you questions in order to help you open your heart. Right. And in respect to what we are hearing from David, creating me a clean heart, David, so many of his psalms, he calls upon the Lord, just prays out before the Lord. How, how does that interface with what you do, and how would you see that to encourage us? Yeah, um, just in light of, you know, how can our hearts become like David's and have a whole heart? I'm so encouraged by reading through the Psalms, and so many of you have encouraged me in how well you know Scripture. Um, And I just would love for us as a body to allow the Psalms to free us up in what we bring before the Lord. So David talks about despair and even rage Um, he tells God when he feels rejected by God and he calls out to God like, God, are you going to reject me forever? So I would, I would love for us all together to just feel a little bit more freedom in our prayer life to bring every emotion to the Lord, whatever it is you're experiencing, whatever it is you're feeling, whatever it is you're thinking, God wants to know about it. A lot of times we feel like, oh, it's a bad thought or that's a, that's a shameful emotion, but then we push it down and we notice that it comes back up. It didn't go away, even though we try so hard to shove it down. 
So instead, to go through the pattern of bringing it before God, not that we feel so weighed down by guilt and shame in that moment, but instead say, God, this is here. This is the ugliness that's in my heart. I'm so sorry. We we please help me to experience your love and your grace in this moment. Not guilt and shame, but please help me experience your love and your grace, um, even in the midst of knowing what it is truthfully that's in my heart. Mm-hmm. It's really helpful. I know maybe I speak for a few out here that I grew up. You know, it's all about biblical knowledge. Just I'm wholeheartedly into that, but it it becomes. Up here, well, I throw, throw it around in my brain, systematic theology, get everything, and all the, all the truth is all lined up. But it doesn't always translate to the, some of the struggles that you feel down here in your heart, your emotions, like you're talking about. And I love that, as Christian was saying, that, that the Psalms are so filled with David's heart, his expression, things that I would feel kind of guilty saying. He says it. And God says, I can handle it. Just tell me the truth. I want your whole heart. And so I appreciate you helping lead people. And Kristen's here to help folks to, to walk that kind of a walk, not just up here, but down here in the heart as well. I encourage you to seek that out and find a good place to have a whole heart before the Lord. We want to, everybody goes to heaven, have a whole heart before God and, and get rid of the half-hearted folks that sometimes we just don't quite have it all put together yet. But we're in a process of growing and getting there. We're all on a journey. I'm on a journey trying to get there. Kristen is as, as well as you. So we want to encourage you in that. So would you pray for us as we come before the Lord and just thank the Lord for what he's done here as we worship one more time. I'd love to. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your grace and for your love for each of us. It is so wide. It is so high. It is so deep. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray that each of us would take one step closer to having a whole heart. Lord, that we would feel a little bit more freedom to be honest with what is actually going on in our thoughts and in our hearts. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us in those places where we feel alone, in those places where we feel ashamed, in that dark corner that we haven't told anyone about. God, I pray that we would invite you into that place. Pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.